Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Emily Highland the co-founder of the wildly popular New York City restaurants Pizza Loves Emily and Emmy Squared. On this episode, we discuss Emily's wild journey and how she pivoted from poetry to pizza and back. Literally, she studied sociology and anthropology in school, got her MFA in poetry, and became a teacher. And while she was teaching, she actually helped open up a school on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And then our conversation starts going down the path of being a restaurateur with her then-husband, now ex-husband, and we discuss the heartbreak and the decimation of their marriage, all the while running one of the most popular restaurants in New York City. For those who can't travel to New York, you can try her game-changing pizza and also phenomenal burgers, and we discuss how the business grew during COVID and utilized third-party partnerships to ship their menu around the country. To quote one of my favorite food review sites, The Infatuation, They said, we love everything about Emily. It's the kind of restaurant you walk into and immediately know you're in a place where good things happen. You need to trust us on this one. That Emily, damn, is she fine. And I couldn't have said it better. Please enjoy this episode with the fantastic Emily Highland. Hello, Emily. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on. First, I want to say thank you to the incredible Tina Lindstrom for the introduction. She was one of my favorite guests on the show, and I love her taste in finance and trading, but I also love her taste in food, and that's how your name came up. (laughs) So thank you to Tina for the initial introduction. And I know it's lunchtime over there, and I'm getting hungry looking at your cookbook, which is amazing, and it's making me very, very hungry. And so the cookbook is the cookbook, Pizza Loves Emily. I had mentioned to a few friends that I was interviewing you and both in New York and also the West Coast for people who had moved from New York. And the comments I got were crazy other than them saying, I'm obsessed with her. I'm obsessed with her pizza. They also said it's the best burger in New York. And one comment said, I can't even eat cheese, but they have my favorite cheese curds and I need to find out where you get it. <laughs> but, <laughs> so all these are the most amazing quotes and questions. But first, I always like to start people's profile with really their childhood and where they grew up. So if you don't mind sharing with our listeners where you grew up. Sure. So I'm a Jersey girl. <laughs> I grew up in Northern New Jersey in a town called Ridgewood, just like a suburban bubble. And I spent my childhood there playing basketball at Ridgewood High School and then went on to college in Rhode Island, came back to the tri-state area for graduate school and have been in Brooklyn and New York ever since. And what were your early passions? Was it in food or was it in any of the other arts? 
I'm actually not a classically trained chef at all. When we founded the restaurant group, I dealt with operations and front of the house and hospitality. So there's been lots of learning in that, especially as I've been on these Zoom pizza classes during this time. But my passions growing up have always been writing and I really enjoyed playing sports. So I am a poet. I also teach yoga. I'm very into just like opening, keeping that connective tissue as open and limber as possible so I can be as mobile as possible as I get older. (laughs) So rewinding a little bit, when you chose where you went to college, where did you pick and how did you pick it? I went to a small school in Rhode Island called Roger Williams University. And I went there because the basketball coach was interested in me. My ego wanted to go play at a division one school where I would have sat on the bench. And my very wise father said, go on an academic scholarship to a division three school. So if you hate it, you can quit and have a college life. And he was right. So that's exactly what I did midway through my first season and got to hang out and drink beer and eat pizza in the dorms and really enjoyed that. So it was the right choice. And what were you studying there? I studied sociology, anthropology, and creative writing. And then I minored in English. So when you graduated, did you assume you'd go that route, whether it's sociology or anthro, any of those fields? I went straight into doing an MFA in poetry at Brooklyn College. So graduated in May and then in September started my MFA, which was really intimidating in retrospect. I was 21 at the time and most people in MFAs for writing tend to be, I feel like early to mid thirties. And that was a feat to get through that and really set the foundation for this through line in my adult life of this daily ritual of writing and practicing that craft. I love that. I just got my husband the book, The Artist's Way, and she's the one that came up with every day you wake up and you write three pages. Yeah, morning pages. So you graduate with an MFA in poetry. What did you want to do with that? What did you think that would amount to? I didn't think that that would amount to anything. (laughs) My parents were not thrilled. They're both lifelong educators, so we're not happy. And I was unemployed. My ex-husband, who was my boyfriend or fiance at the time, was, you know, working as an hourly line cook, and we were very hopeless. And my dad sat me down one afternoon and was like, you're going to apply to the teaching fellows program and like had the application pulled up on the computer screen. So I became a New York City teaching fellow and then became an English teacher in the public school system for a few years. And I had the amazing experience actually of founding a high school on the Upper West Side with a very small team during Bloomberg's small learning community years, which was really impactful in my opinion. And so being in that kind of environment forced me to become super organized and systems driven in my approach to facilitating a group of people or facilitating a group of professionals. And those skills have really been amazing foundational assets in helping to grow a company. I love that. And we'll talk about the classes that you now do with the restaurant. So you opened a school, you're a wonderful teacher. How did this pivot to the restaurant business? My ex-husband, Matt Highland, and I, we met in college, and we came back to New York City where we're both from this area so that I could go to grad school and he could go to culinary school. He is the classically trained chef of the duo, and all his years working in restaurants, he knew that he wanted to open a pizza restaurant the second he put his hands on dough, and it was just the time and space in my life opened up that I had resigned from the public school system. I had just finished my teacher training program in yoga school and was filled with the courage to take a leap and felt like I needed to pivot and do so. 
And I remember the day he came home and he was like, this is what I want to do. I want to open a pizza restaurant. And so I said, okay. And I had the aptitude in, again, many of those administrative tasks and needs. So there was that component of functionality that I brought to the table. And he brought the creative original menu and operating the kitchen. And so in tandem, we dove into the abyss that changed our lives forever. I loved how you said it's filled with courage because that's exactly what it was to open up a restaurant anywhere. The statistics aren't for you. (laughs) So it definitely was a courageous thing. And so how did the naming concept come about? It sounds like Matt was the chef and had the idea of the pizza side, but the restaurant is about you and how pizza loves you and Emmy Squared. And so I'm curious the name genesis and how that evolved. He named it after me. So (laughs) I'm total egoist. I did not name my restaurant after (laughs) myself. It was named after me. And that was very sweet. So that really gave me an interesting sense of identity and purpose in the initial concept in Clinton Hill. I was Emily of Emily with my name on the window and standing at the front door. And I embraced that, but it also added this very unanticipated layer of pressure being the eponymous founder and having that connection to guests and wanting the experience to be as full and amazing for every single person as possible. And so that was really interesting, the metacognitive attachment and relationship that my own internal self really took to the brand. And as the company has grown into something beyond me, beyond my marriage, there was a lot of untangling work that I had to do with corporate coach, with counselor, with a marital counselor to really establish myself as a person that is not this intangible thing. It's a real thing that that happens when you're a namesake of something. I know. I definitely want to talk about the founder profile and that mindset. But going back to now about six or seven years ago, how did it come about? Like, how did you pick that area in Brooklyn for your first store? (laughs) The story is that Matt and I had actually opened another restaurant called Brooklyn Central about a year and a half earlier in Park Slope. And we did that with someone we partnered with very quickly because the opportunity was there. We're super young, super green, not business people. Again, a chef and a poet jumped in and had a horrible partner divorce there very quickly. And so that wound up being some really good and essential training wheels in retrospect. And we were devastated and thought it was over took some time off. And then one day it was a nice day. And he was like, let's go over to Clinton Hill and explore that neighborhood. A friend of mine recommended this restaurant called the Wallace over there. And he used to work in a kitchen from one of my chef friends. So we ambled over to Clinton Hill to look at the Wallace and the Wallace had a big for rent sign just smacked across the gate. And we were like, that's where we're putting our restaurant. That's the place. I don't know what reasoning there was. It was all really gut intuition. And so we walked up the street and found a little cafe. We really didn't know a lot about the neighborhood or the demographic of the neighborhood. We sat down in my journal, scribbled out what we thought the key money might cost to get in there, called the landlord, had my dad come the next day to take a look at the space with us and just started the process. So this area and this location spoke to you that much that it just started the ball rolling. It just started with the gate down and everything. The shuttered restaurant was, we were like, that's Emily. That's what it's going to be. So it was pretty neat how that happened. And it's the same thing when we moved to Brooklyn. We were walking around the neighborhood of downtown Brooklyn, Cobble Hill, many years earlier. And he said to me, I think we could live here. And then we found an apartment and that's where we wound up living. And those gut instincts really drove a lot of our choices in the early days. And I'm glad that we listened. I love that. So when you started then your own restaurant with Matt, 
Can you walk through for those who don't know what style of pizza that you guys focus on? Sure. So at Emily Original, we focused on New York, New Haven style pizza, which is cooked in a wood burning artisanal oven, very 12 inches, very thin crust. We like to cook our pizzas very well done. So it's almost like a little burnt around the edge, nice and evenly topped, lots of fun topping combinations. Then as we evolved to Emmy Squared, which I know you'll get into a little bit, we started to serve Detroit style pizza, which has really been the catalyst for the company's growth and continuing expansion nationally. Unbelievably so. (laughs) Well, speaking of unbelievable, we spoke about this before and you mentioned the growth has been unbelievable. But that first restaurant, what was it about that first week, that first month that had lines out the door around the block? What kind of PR or social media campaign did you guys do? Matt was a big believer in we need to save money to spend on PR off the cuff. And so that was a really conscious decision that we made for a short-term PR contract because that's all we could afford at the time. We did that. And it really also was the confluence of social media and the timing of when that restaurant came to be really synthesized on the line graph going up. So that certainly helped. The neighborhood was ripe for a neighborhood place that felt like home where the servers and the owner was greeting you at the door and the other owner was cooking your pizzas. So that really built traction. And then Chef Matt got very tired of eating pizza after months and months (laughs) of making it. I still am not tired of eating pizza ever, for the record. Welcome to my thighs. (laughs) (laughs) So he decided he wanted to put a burger on the menu. And we started it out for a family meal, sharing it with neighborhood regulars and fans. And it built traction. And so we decided to put it on. And then very shortly thereafter, the infatuation came in and gave us an unbelievably remarkable review that we never in our wildest dreams could have expected. And literally the next day, as you said, the line was wrapped around the corner at 4.30 before dinner service. And we were full by like 5.02 when the doors opened. And it was like that for years. And that's what essentially drew the attention of restaurant investors who wanted to help us expand. So I mean, never in my wildest dreams did I ever, ever imagine this is where I would be in my life. I thought we were going to try this out for a while. It might flop. We might go open a food truck in Portland. We might reinvent ourselves on my ex-mother-in-law's couch in the basement and figure (laughs) out what the hell we're doing with our lives. And it was a strike of luck, hard work, blood, sweat, and tears, the right combination of being in the right place at the right time too, I think. Of the three categories of food, so it's the two types of pizza and the burger, Which one is the most popular from a revenue perspective? I think the pizza and burgers are very equally popular among guests. We serve more pizza than burgers on any given night just because of the nature of people's eating habits, I think, and dining out habits, especially right now. In the beginning, we were only able to serve 25 burgers a night at Emily, which also caused a lot of the craze. Simply from a logistics perspective, we wound up having to get a second freezer for the fries, a little mini fridge crammed into a corner next to the walk-in just for our meat, hire another prep guy to handle all of that. There was a lot that went into being able to produce more burgers. And in the early days, we just didn't have the bandwidth. So it used to be 25 a night and they would sell out within the first 30 minutes and people would freak out. So I'm happy that now we're at a place where we can offer them to go as well, which is something we never thought we would be able to, but it is a nice balance between the two. 
That's amazing. Two of my favorite foods. And as Tina was sending me pictures, pretty much flip-flops, sometimes burger, sometimes pizza. I became obsessed with the brand. I'm like, whoever came up with this idea is a genius because they're just amazing together and <laughs> separately too. So I can't wait to actually go in person. Now, how many restaurants do you guys have? We have nine restaurants. I can't yin emphasize enough how unexpected this has all been really and truly that first restaurant was like a mom and pop. It is still held together by duct tape and cardboard, like (laughs) quite literally in certain, I just duct taped something on the wall a few weeks ago. I really did not dream that this was possible. So we are fortunate that we have a CEO at the helm of the organization now who's a seasoned business person, Tina's friend, Howard Greenstone, who's our CEO and our primary driver of this growth So he's helped lead the expansion to Philadelphia, to Washington, to Nashville, to Louisville, and we'll be opening in Charlotte and Atlanta, if all goes well, hopefully within the year. Amazing. Well, please, please, please open one in California, please. And I will drive anywhere to go see it in the state. Duly noted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I taken the wonderful class that you had with Goldbelly. And at the end, it was a collaboration with you and Magnolia Bakery. And I love the question that you asked their chief baker, Bobby Lloyd, you asked her, at what point did Magnolia Bakery's profile and brand just skyrocket? And I think I knew when is when I saw the episode of Sex in the City and Carrie had the pink cupcake. I'm like, yes, wherever that is, I need to go. What's amazing about your brand is that you guys never had that celebrity endorsement. It was all people in New York who loved your pizza or who loved your burgers, and they just amplified that brand organically. Do you think you could identify a moment where you noticed it take off? Or was it just every day? It was slowly growing, slowly growing. It was slowly growing, slowly growing. And then it was 100% without a doubt that infatuation review. That was it. It was within 24 hours of that coming out. The line was around the corner. Yeah. And we've had a lot of celebrities dine at the restaurant, but they didn't have the power or the drive of infatuation in terms of the New York City food scene at that time. And infatuation has always been very kind to many restaurants and to us. So I'm appreciative of that because they are true critics too. No, that's awesome. That's good to know. And so you mentioned this a few times, but I want to double click on it a little bit. You mentioned that you and Matt were dating, then engaged, then married, and now not married. How did that all happen in the last six or seven years in terms of opening up a restaurant, opening then eight other restaurants and getting married and divorced all along the way? Yeah, don't go into business family. (laughs) We had been together when, let's see, we were together since 2001 and got married when I, my first year teaching high school. So that was what, 2007? So we had already been married for five years together, over 10 when we opened the concept and had a really strong foundation. And that's just to show how, again, I'll use the word abyss, how much opening a restaurant, especially a small one that you're doing with your own hands is like jumping deep down into that abyss where God knows what will happen. And what happens is sea change in one way or another, because you often, when you're doing something like this, don't understand the magnitude of the undertaking. And so we were not the most complimentary business partners. Stylistically, we approach a lot of things very, very differently. And that created friction. And also we were on 24 seven, it wasn't like we were able to code switch into married time at two in the morning during pillow talk, it might be some ongoing argument from the restaurant, and we weren't really able to 
disassociate from the personal element of it because the whole brand pizza loves Emily. It was built on our love story. So we were at the restaurant together all the time. And the arguments that we would have about work would be charged by all of the emotion in our lives. And it just tumbled and everything was moving so fast at the time too, just because the concept was moving and building momentum. We really got swept up in it and lost sight of each other and had a very unpleasant divorce. (laughs) But you know, you grow and learn from everything and I'm out the other side and the experience has taught me so much about life and becoming resilient and forging ahead with my path. He's got a new path too, and life moves and you move with it, whether you like it or not. And so you're still co-founders. You're still in operation together. No one bought the other person out equity wise. No, we are <laughs> constant negotiations. And Emily original, anytime things go south, it's one of us is like, buy me out, but we can't ever seem to agree on the terms of that. So yeah, we're the co-founders and equal operators at Emily Original still, and I am a working partner at Emmy Squared, and he has chosen to stay on the sidelines, so he's not operating at Emmy Squared. There's so much to ask and unpack in that. As you guys were having this tense moment at home, how would that reflect in the food, whether the customers can tell whether the food was compromised? How did that evolve from the client service side with the pizza fans and the Emily fans? It was less obvious or potent ever in the food and more potent for the staff at the original location. My sister was a founding member of the team. Our staff was very small and young and tight knit and friendly. The restaurant space is very tiny. So it's like suffocating in a way when you're there with that very incestual group. And so it would be hard. Like if a server needed me to communicate something to the kitchen. And I was the point of contact to communicate something that chef wouldn't be happy about. And chefs take their food to heart. It's their art. So if there was something wrong from a guest perspective that chef didn't want to hear, and I was communicating that message, that's when the challenge would really start to be. And we didn't have an office with a door. The office was sitting on a crate in the wine room that's right by the dishwashing station. So we would go down to the wine room and argue about things. But then our faithful dishwasher, poor Ibu, the keeper of all the true secrets would invariably hear us. And sometimes it would turn into yelling or I would have to leave or he would have to leave. And it was really, really hard. But in terms of guests, we really did our best. It's always been about the hospitality experience and making the restaurant and the food feel like an extension of our home. So that was always a priority for us. And we learned, learned how to be leaders and managers of a group and separate. It's not personal, it's business. And that is something that was really, really, really hard for me to understand, given the context of how we did found. And now that I have, it's really created such clarity and given such healthier boundaries to what I associate with my work world. During the process of the divorce, did the restaurant concepts or the food or the menu, did anything change as a result of the divorce in the terms of, oh, did you realize that you might like this part of the menu more and that was just more for personal reasons that you kept it on? Or how did it affect the business in more of a professional way? So, I mean, the brands changed. The brand story was Emily and Matt, this pizza couple. I remember a few weeks after our separation, right in the heat of things, we had some shoot for some show that I don't even think the piece wound up going where the film guy was asking us to like, be like, oh, pizza loves you. And like him, look at me and give me a kiss. And we're standing there next to each other. And I'm basically like just constant tears rolling down my face, not able to put that 
layer of Teflon on for the work element of things. So the brand's totally adapted. It's funny, this past Valentine's Day, I've always been so accustomed to, we would always get all the Valentine's pizza couple, easy stories there. And it's like, hey, why didn't I get any stories for Valentine's Day? Oh, we're not a pizza couple anymore, but that's fine. So the brand story has shifted in regards to that. And I personally had to take a leave of absence. I was struggling with the separation of identity, with having to be in the workplace with my ex-husband who wanted nothing to do with me. I wound up taking about a year and a half leave of absence in a really pivotal time of growth for the organization. And I relinquished my CEO roles to Howard. It's always a silver lining. Like that was a low point for me, but it made me realize how my skill set is in such a different other facet of what I have to offer. And he was much better suited to run the organization anyway. So I'm glad that that shift happened then. I just didn't understand it at that point. And I had major founderitis, which is a thing, and felt like everything that was mine was being taken away from me in a place when I was also super vulnerable and heartbroken. So really had to just step back and do the self-care work to get my own feet on the ground before I could even re-engage with participating in the business in a professional manner. I love that you shared that because I think a lot of people talk about hardship or struggle briefly. And I like how you said, no, it takes a long time and it takes a lot of work. In the year and a half journey, at what point did you say, I know what I want, I know why I want to get back into the business? What was that process like for you? I don't think I necessarily had such a clear aha moment of like, I know I want to be back in this. And if it wasn't named after me, even with all of that identity separation work, I wonder if I would have felt such a compelling urge to be participating. But I just think that the company had stabilized. Now you have to have in context that all of this happened, this big implosion in our personal life happens within the month of signing the paperwork to grow with our partners, right as we opened the flagship store in the West Village. So there was a lot of intensity going on and so much change that I really don't know what compelled me to come back, except that this is where my life is right now. And one of my mentors found a small, amazing health and healing yoga studio in Prospect Heights during the time I got back to teaching English in college again. I got back to writing poetry seriously again during that time. And all of that internal nurturing helped me understand that I still had space for this thing that was important to me. That's at a major opportunity that people don't have in their lives. And I like the people that I work with and the culture and the vision that we're trying to develop at Emmy. And it felt sweet and important to be a part of it. Speaking of shifts and pivots, with this pandemic, restaurants are struggling across the world. How did you guys pivot? And what were some of the newer things that you guys did that you have found resonated with clients and also for the business that remained hopefully profitable? It's been a challenge. We closed one of our restaurants, one of our newest restaurants, Violet, that had opened. So that closed early on in the pandemic. And the biggest thing to emerge, I mean, obviously, like everybody else, we have adapted and we're fortunate that we're pizza. So already people associate us with being food that is to go or ordered in. But amplifying that kind of programming, getting that outdoor seating, all the typical things. But then this whole opportunity to do these virtual pizza classes evolved and in partnership with Gold Belly, who we were fortunate enough to already be 
uh, be shipping with since just a few months before the pandemic. Thank God the groundwork had been laid. We've developed this amazing and unexpected line of programming, these pizza classes that I teach. And I love it. (laughs) It's like a perfect melding of so many skills and passions for me that allow me to bridge the relationship to guests whose tables I would otherwise be walking over to say hello and check on their meals, tuning into their homes to teaching a lesson, which I feel very comfortable in a classroom setting like that. That's my educational training for the most part. And it really resonates with me and feels like what the brand is about, which is about being warm, accessible, part of that collective unconscious of our nostalgic lives, eating pizza in our kitchens in our jammies. No, I had the pleasure and privilege of going to one of those classes and thank you for including me. And what I loved is very clear that you were a teacher or good at teaching because I've seen a lot of things and instructions virtually and not surprisingly, it runs the gamut, but it's awful to exceptional. And your classes are exceptional in that you're fun and you're casual, but you're also teaching still. But with the simple things that you wouldn't recognize of as you're cooking, you would say, move this away so you have a clean and clear working space. It's so helpful to hear that because I'm the type that it's just a hot mess in the kitchen. And at the end, it's like a Tasmanian devil came in. You're like, oh no. So a clear, clean working space is helpful. And just to have tiny little instructions like that along the way are super helpful. And it's just a a lively discussion that you have with fun props and it's really fun. So I highly recommend it for everyone who's thinking about it. You had mentioned a few times the idea of founderitis. Can you walk through now that you've had several years of going through it, reconciling it, but how do you feel about now the struggle of this founderitis identity crisis? So it's actually a thing, right? Like I was all caught up in my own storyline about how things should be or that this is mine. Like I birthed this. I mean this. Ergo, it is mine. (laughs) It's my name. I used to make every decision down to the pink color on the wall to like which tray we're using, what font we're using, whatever. So to have to relinquish that, it's like raising your kiddo and then sending your kiddo off to college and they get their eyebrow pierced and come (laughs) home and you're like, what just happened? Uh, 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 That's not going to fly. So I've had the opportunity to have a handful of sessions with this corporate coach named Eric Wolf, who is seasoned and amazing. And when we sat down together right at the beginning of my re-entry into the organization, and I was talking about all of my feelings and how frustrated I was with certain things, he put the label on it and said, this is the thing, this is founderitis and you got a bad case of it. Let's, (laughs) Let's unpack this. And that's really what it is. It's when a founder becomes too attached to the original concept that they actually get in the way of its ability to blossom and grow. And I didn't open a company. I opened a restaurant as, again, someone who lacked any sort of business savvy or interest for that matter. I really don't have an interest in like the corporate business world, which is always so interesting when people are like, you're such an empowered female entrepreneur. It's like, okay. (laughs) but That really helped me realize that it is a company that now I have more partners than just me and my other founder, and it's everybody's. And in that shared vision, there's so much more expertise. And it's really about, like what I say in pizza class about making the dough, taking the ego out of the equation, which I say when I teach my yoga classes too, about doing anything for that matter. It's the same thing. It's my ego was very caught up, which is what happens to most founders. And When you can put that ego aside and participate in being a part of a larger organism, then it has the potential to evolve more potently and beautifully. One of the things I struggle with is coming up with a subtitle to describe 
anyone, right? Are you a mother, a wife, a daughter, a salesperson, a chef, a poet? Now that you've had work and you've tried to unpack different parts of your profile, what, if anything, do you identify the most with? Or is it a broad spectrum of different adjectives? I'm curious, just because you are a poet, you're a writer, you're a teacher, you're a restaurateur, I'm curious if there's one category that you would kind of bucket yourself or how you think about buckets conceptually now. I feel most drawn to the label of poet because that is how I spend my time most seriously every single day. And that is something that has opened up for me in a way I also never thought was possible. I just, I have my first manuscript that I've been working really hard on, just got picked up with an agent. So I'm hoping that that will be able to be in print soon, which is a big deal. And I've published over 20 poems in the last year or two, which is a really big deal in the land of poetry. I'm teaching poetry to college kids, which is like my dream. When the course became available, actually, and I had to write a proposal as to why I would be the one to teach as a lowly adjunct, why do I get to teach intro to poetry? And I prefaced it saying, I am the founder, I'm the owner of a national restaurant group. And this is literally like the chance of a lifetime for me to get to teach one section of intro to poetry at City Tech. That's how important that is to me. And I remember like my aha moment with becoming a poet when I was back in sixth grade in Mrs. Berrien's English class in a way that's a lot less arbitrary than my foray into the restaurant world. This is never something I sought out to do. It's a place I wound up and I love being in, but my passion and my heart lies in my journal. Have you noticed that your love for poetry and really creative license, has that applied itself in the restaurant business or is it separate thoughts for you? I'm super hopeful that the Emmy Squared cookbook will have a short little series of poems interwoven throughout it that I've written and are part of the proposal. So I think that will be really cool and a really like avant-garde approach to a cookbook, which I don't think has really been done before. I think the creative thinking definitely is an asset to being on the corporate team. I think I think a little bit differently than some of our very like operations brain, passion focused people like that. So that perspective is always very welcome and supported by the CEO and the rest of the group. Well, I can't wait for that to come out. It's a pizza and poetry cookbook. Yes, please sign me up. (laughs) I hope so. We'll see. (laughs) I have to ask your graphics are just adorable. Who comes up with the pizza scribble or the pizza drawing? Thank you. That was me. Those little one dimensional characters were little just sketches originally for Matt randomly in my notebook years ago. And our director of marketing and PR, Samantha Ulrich, has since helped digitize and turn them into square pizza slices. Now the logo has that same female face, but her lips are bright red and she's a square with her little pepperoni cheeks. So she's evolved somewhat, but she's empowered. She's in her high heels and eating her pizza and drinking her wine and not to be reckoned with. That's right. I love her. Well, I have so many more food-based questions, but I know that our time's running out. So I want to go to the few questions that I ask all my guests, starting with who or what inspires you? My mom who died last year was hands down my biggest inspiration. And she would be so proud of the pizza classes and all of the momentum that the business is seeing. So she, number one. And then in terms of like a business mentor, I really do feel like Howard has been a mentor. He's a lot older and more seasoned, and I really look up to him, and he's held space for me throughout this whole process of business growth. Can I ask, one interview I did was with Nei Shi, and she started Chesapeake Bay Company, which is a wonderful candle business. 
And I didn't know anything about candle manufacturing. And what was interesting is she was talking about partnering up with Target and how Target as a retailer taught her business, taught her how to scale and manufacture in a way that other businesses don't necessarily, and it's just the size of it. For you, I'm curious, because you have such a wonderful mentor in Howard who seems to be a restaurant businessman, which is wonderful, what are some of the things that he taught you or that you learned from him that other restaurateurs might be curious about of someone who has such experience scaling businesses? What are some of the things that you've learned? So keeping the personal separate from the business, staying in your lane, that's one of his favorite axioms stay in your lane. Everybody has their lane. If we stay in our own lanes, we won't get in a traffic jam or a collision and everything will ride down that highway smoothly. Those are really important. A big one for me in terms of healing from the founderitis, (laughs) the doctor's orders. He always talked about taking a view like from the airplane, like a 30,000 foot above the ground view so that I was so accustomed to being right down in it, like at the host stand with my two hour wait list back in the day, and how I really needed to lift myself to have a higher perspective of the business as a whole. And I also think taking the long view, he really has emphasized the importance of weathering the storm and standing up as a leader that people can count on during something like an unexpected global pandemic and just having faith and thinking strategically about coming out the other side. I've always valued people and employees, and I really have seen him embracing that same philosophy during this time. I know early on last year in like March, April, we were on calls where he was like, we have to keep our people like our people are important. And that really makes me appreciate, you know, there's a lot of restaurant investors that I could have partnered with. Again, being green, it's easy to get taken advantage of. And I just feel very grateful that that isn't the case that I lucked out with somebody who has a very similar empathetic view of the whole business and process of growing it. I love the quote, stay with your lane. So when you guys mentioned to Howard that you're going to add burgers to the business menu, was he like, no, (laughs) don't do it? Those were one of the things that definitely attract restaurant. He likes to say people come for the pizza and they stay for the burger. That's his catchphrase. (laughs) I used to ask this question, just given the namesake of the show of, can you highlight one of the biggest failures or struggles and share that? And over time it's evolved. And so I want to use the other word in the show is growth. And so can you talk about one of your biggest growth moments, which inevitably I'm sure incorporates struggle and adversity, but I'm curious in hindsight now, if you could share one of your biggest growth moments? My biggest growth moment as a person and a professional came from the complete decimation of my marriage. And I'm grateful for all, like, I don't regret it. (laughs) So the failure or the desolation really fostered, I had no choice from that place of stepping out of the company where my identity was fully tied up into stepping out of my marriage that I didn't have a choice to step out of that the rest of my identity was tied to. I was so lost. I had put all the things that were important to me off to the side to get caught up as we do invariably in career and the pace of life. And I had to reestablish my entire sense of self. So that was my growth moment. And I have learned and changed for the better so much since that time, almost four years ago. It's already hard enough going into the restaurant business, but going into it with your partner, and it sounds like it was a surprise to you because you'd mentioned the words heartbroken and decimated and almost one-sided. In those four years, can you share some of those lessons learned or for those who might not necessarily apply this to the restaurants, but who are heartbroken or who are 
at a low, how did you get back up? Because that's one of the hardest things to try to even conceive or try to share. There's a quote from Mary Oliver, every morning, a new arrival. I have that on a little card in my closet that I see in the morning. And it is a reminder that every breath is a new opportunity to start from the beginning, start from where you are. And so that is a super helpful reminder. The other thing that we didn't talk a lot about is my yoga and mindfulness practice that I've consistently had since 2007. So I guess coming up on 15 years. And that's also been another major through line and lifesaver in my adult life. I came to the yoga mat when I was very unhappy, full of anxiety, incredibly overweight, not doing well as a person. And it really helped me shift away from a lot of bad habits that I'd put in place or that had snuck into my life and helped me reorient to a greater sense of contentment and being present. So daily yoga practice is amazing. And I don't mean yoga by like, yoga is not a workout, right? It doesn't have to be like a power yoga class. And that bothers me when people make that association. It can be super gentle, but some yoga movement where you're getting in touch with your body. I was in marriage counseling. I was in regular counseling. I was working with a corporate coach. I was going to healing workshops at the yoga studio. I rebudgeted my money so that I could go and see this amazing acupuncturist who I was working with to really just move energy and paint. A lot of my emotional pain had manifested like physical, like a physical stuckness in my connective tissue. So working with her, if you have the ability to spend the time on those kinds of bodily self-care, that really goes hand in hand with helping nurture yourself out of the heartbreak, right? Every experience we've ever had is living in our tissue. And so it's hiding in there somewhere. We just, we need to unlock it. And it's also related. So I love the, the mind-body-soul connection. One question that I've added to the list is just because I have liked it more recently and a lot of people started asking about it with the other people. What is your opinion on how luck has amplified your success? Do you think that it was through a lot of hard work? Do you think it was a little bit of luck, a lot of luck? I'm curious to get your perspective of how much luck was attributed to your success. It was a lot of hard work, but a lot of luck. There's a lot of people that work just as hard as we did and didn't have that lucky get a lot of luck. Again, the social media, the timing, right place, right time. It really feels like a lot of that. In 2014, when you guys opened the restaurant business, New York has a ton of burger places. It has a ton of pizza places. And one piece of advice that I was given that I'm grateful I had to not have taken, someone told me not to have this podcast. They're like, no offense, why you, you have no reason to have a podcast. And I said, true, but I really want one. And I just want to have my own show to highlight people who I can have on my show without any direction. But if I were to take that advice and say like, don't have it because there's a million other podcasts out there, I wouldn't have had these amazing connections. How did you guys say New York needs another pizza place? Or what was that thinking in your mind of how unique this pizza was? Or did you just want to open up a restaurant? But I'm curious how you think about, oh, does the world need another restaurant or does the world need another pizza or burger place? For us, it was really about opening a restaurant that felt like an extension of our home. Like at that time, Matt was really into cooking these like hearty, very artisanal, like the hearth and the wood burning oven types of meals. And we loved having friends over for dinner and like really loved the holidays. We'd like really love to curate an experience for our family. 
So we wanted the restaurant to just be like, well, how can we do this on a larger scale where if our home could have 26 people over for dinner, we could do this. So it had that kind of feel to it. And in terms of another pizza place, it wasn't about trying to compete with other pizza places. Honestly, it was, we wanted to create a place that we wanted to eat at that as diners who love the New York city food scene would be appealing to people like us. There's so many great restaurants that we love to support. And this was about us making the one that felt like ours. It was our baby. It came to be as a result of our marriage. One question that came in is, what is your favorite pizza? And I've tried the one on the Gold Belly class, which was the pistachio and the honey. But I think listeners will say, which one is your favorite? Right now, I'm really digging our pie called the MVP. And it's the triple sauce pie. So you've got red sauce, vodka sauce, and then our homemade parsley pesto zigzagged on top. And then I like to do the really dirty version with burrata on top of that. That sounds like a way better version too. What's next for Emily Highland? On Gold Belly, I have an array of upcoming classes. We're doing a kid's pizza making class, which is going to be really fun. We have a munchies class where we deconstruct the burger in pizza form. And then Longview, we have Mother's Day and a Father's Day class to look forward to. My dad's going to be co-hosting with me on Father's Day. Oh, that's amazing. I'm just going to keep on course. I'm really feeling hopeful that I'll be able to publish my collection of poetry and the Emmy Squared cookbook within the next few years. So I'm really putting a lot of attention into that and just continuing to help grow the business as much as we can, even in these challenging times, just keep forging ahead and figuring out what needs to happen. Awesome. Well, I'm so grateful that you guys are on Gold Belly so that I can get the MVPs shipped nationwide, at least so I can get them. Emily, thank you so much. I had a blast in this conversation and now I'm getting super hungry. So thank you for making the time. Thank you. Thank you. 